Would you turn with me in your Bibles first to Luke 1, and then we're going to also look at Matthew 1. I know we're following Matthew's Christmas story, but we're going to have to dip into the Gospel of Luke a little bit uh, for the message that we look at today as well. We've noticed that uh, Luke kind of follows the, the story of Mary and gives us some very intimate de- details that only Mary would know of how, how the, uh, the angel approached her and, and the song she sang that we just uh, reflected on in prayer. Uh, so it was kind of Mary, Christmas from Mary's perspective. Matthew sort of takes us following Joseph and the dreams that Joseph received and kind of gives us Christmas from Joseph's perspective. Uh, and so we've, the last few weeks, looked at Christmas from Joseph's perspective. We, we looked at the genealogy, the family tree in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, which was Joseph's family tree. It became Jesus' family tree when in the second half of Matthew 1, Joseph legally adopts Jesus, marries Mary, and, and uh, adopts Jesus by naming him. We've also seen, uh, talked a little bit about Joseph and his role in taking uh, Mary to Egypt and then back to, to Nazareth in response to dreams that God had, had given him. And we talked a little bit last time about how did Joseph approach this whole thing. He's kind of a, seemingly a minor character, and we talked about Joseph's obedience but now this morning, I want to talk about Mary and Joseph as a couple. And what did they experience in this whole Christmas story? Uh, we're going to ask the question, a similar question that we're going to ask on Christmas Day as well. How far was it to Bethlehem? In their case, how far was it to Bethlehem from Nazareth? The picture you see on the screen is a picture of Nazareth. So let's read first uh, the Annunciation, the announcement of the angel to Mary, and then we'll go back to Matthew and read the announcement of uh, the angel to Joseph. So Luke 1, and we're going to pick it up at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she was said to be barren as in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Now we'd like to think, okay, the angel left her and he headed on over to, to Joseph's house to explain it to him. But we know that, in fact, the angel didn't appear to Joseph until several months later when, when the pregnancy became obvious. But then would you turn back with me to Matthew 1, where we now have the angel announcing that to, to Joseph. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Conclude our reading there. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as you came to Mary and Joseph through your angel, we now pray that you come to us through your spirit. And help us to understand and reflect on how far it is to Bethlehem for us this Advent and Christmas season, even as we reflect on how far it was for Mary and Joseph. And we pray that we might be able to respond like they did in obedience and faithfulness and in pondering what you're doing in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we there yet? How far is it? Any of you ever heard this from the back seat of the car? We used to hear this a lot when we made the long trip from northwest Iowa back to Michigan or Indiana. Our kids hadn't learned yet that journeys take time, patience, and sometimes a lot of gas and gummy bears. But you know, as we mature, we, we still ask, how far is it? But with a different purpose in mind. It allows us to gauge our journey, plan for stops along the way, look for milestones that indicate progress and the like. And we learn that a journey is a process. It brings us from one point to another with stops and starts, refueling and adjustment along the way. And the same is true for a spiritual journey. Whether days, weeks, or years, it's a movement through time, possibly through physical space, but it's also a movement in one's heart and mind, one's emotions and thinking. And along the way in their spiritual journey, we change as God prepares for what he has for us next. This morning, we're going to look at a couple of the characters of the Christmas story, and particularly their journey, how God brought them from Nazareth to Bethlehem to an encounter with him through his incarnate son. We'll see how they changed spiritually, even as they journeyed physically. But as we ask how far is it to Bethlehem for Mary and Joseph, I hope we'll be asking that same question of us. How far is it to come to the Christ child this Christmas season for us? Well, for a newly engaged couple named Joseph and Mary, Bethlehem was about a three to five day trip, long distance in our age of jet travel. 
But that was only one small factor in the journey Mary and Joseph were about to take. Nazareth, and this is a artist's rendering of what it would have looked like perhaps in the first century, was in Lower Galilee, about three and a half miles from uh, the bigger city of Sepphoris. It was a small frontier town near the major east-west trade route. But on a hill overlooking the plain of Ezralon, it appears to have remained rather aloof. Not just physically aloof, but socially aloof. Spiritually aloof. One reason for this may have been its residence. Apparently, Nazareth was founded by the family of Jesse and King David. And it was actually named after the prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 1, about a branch or shoot that comes out of Jesse, and that the, the Hebrew word for that is Netzer, and so they named their town Netzeret, branch town, if you will. Now, that prophecy was considered to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so they believed that their town, Nazareth, would produce the Messiah. Now, they happen to be right, but there was a bit of spiritual snobbery about Nazareth, which Jesus would later confront at its synagogue in Luke 4, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. Joseph, probably age 20 to 25, a tecton, where we sometimes translate it carpenter, although he probably was much more of a stonemason than working with wood, but also a little lower class than a tradesman. Joseph asked his parents about Mary. Mary was maybe 15, 16 years old, maybe a little younger. Maybe she looked like one of these uh, peasant girls walking uh, near the village of Nazareth in the late 1800s. When he asked his parents, you know, what do you think about me marrying her, they likely gave quick approval because they were both from the same ancestral line. They were both from the family of Jesse and of the family of King David. So Joseph and Mary's fathers negotiated a dowry. And once approved, Joseph offered Mary a cup of wine, which when she accepted it was accepting his marriage proposal. The parents uttered a formal blessing over them, and they were legally betrothed to the point where only divorce could separate them. Joseph then went back to his father's house to build a room, an apartment, on the family compound where they would live, and he would probably be there for about a year doing that, and then the final part of the wedding would take place, the wedding banquet. But in the meantime, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Now her reaction wasn't so much in being stunned by an angel appearance as others in the Christmas story, as what he said. First, greeting her, saying, you're highly favored by God, but then what he announced to her, something unknown for the people of Israel, because God had many times opened the wombs of barren women for a miracle birth, as he was, going to, was doing with Elizabeth as well, but never a virgin birth, <clears throat> never a virgin birth. And Mary agreed to it. In simple trust, wondering that God would use her to bring about the long-awaited Messiah. She gave expression to her wonder in, in songs, 
It's reflected in the prayer this morning, capturing many of the biblical themes of God's faithfulness to Israel. But did the word stick in her throat? He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Would that apply even to evil King Herod? But what may have allowed Mary to be so accepting, her orthodox upbringing in Nazareth and expectation of the Messiah, seems to have left Joseph in a bit of a predicament. He's described, as we've mentioned before, as a tzaddik, a righteous man. A person serious about the Torah, serious about the law. And the Torah left Joseph with only two options at this point. Either publicly divorce Mary, at which point she could be stoned or at least ostracized in society, or have the marriage contract set aside quietly and allow Mary to get out of town. But an angel appears to him and presents a third option. Marry her. Now understand, to do so is either to publicly disobey the Torah or to admit that he was the father of the baby, an overeager groom. In each, either case, it would tarnish his standing as a tzaddik, as a righteous person. Then during all of this, a Roman census calls them to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was at least a three-day journey. Mary's condition probably lengthened the time. Now, you could take two ways to Bethlehem. Either you could shoot straight down the central mountain range, and most, most of the people of Israel settled on the mount, in the mountains. That would take you uh, through Samaria in the Judean mountains to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Or you could go to the east down to the Jordan River Valley, follow the Jordan River south to Jericho, up through the Judean desert and the Judean mountains into Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That was about 80 to 90 miles. So the difference was maybe 10, 20 miles difference. It was probably the, that second route that they took because Jews tended to avoid Samaria. And a good, righteous Jew like like Joseph, probably would have avoided the Samaritans. Well, they eventually showed up in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's a small town like Nazareth, six miles from Jerusalem and the Judean mountains, the hometown of Ruth and Boaz, and of King David, both Joseph and Mary's ancestor. But it also lay in the shadow of Herod's greatest fortress home, the Herodian. This is a picture of the Herodian. <clears throat> I took it from down below, and you can see the pool in the foreground, kind of a colonnaded, very ornate uh, pool. And then in the background is this mountain. And the story goes that, that Herod actually had, the, had his workers take down most of the mountain, build a palace, then build the mountain up around it for a natural protection. And then the only thing that you can't see here would have been a tower that stuck up a little higher, you see the remains of the tower when you get inside, but, but that part was, was down. And in the morning hour, the sun would act, when the sun was coming up, the Herodian would actually cast a literal shadow over Bethlehem. And so you could say that they were bringing Jesus to be born in the shadow of Herod. They probably passed some of Herod's soldiers along the way. 
And so while the journey of this pregnant woman and giving birth in a stable are, are the most obvious physical hardships, I wonder if the geographic setting wasn't even a little bit more daunting for their heads and hearts. After all, they were involved in a subversive activity, a traitorous activity, knowingly entering the town of David to give birth to the promised king from David's line under the orders of a God who, as Mary herself sang, brought down rulers from their thrones. Coming there under direction of a, a Roman emperor who was called the Savior of the world and who called himself Lord to give birth to one who is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in the shadow of one of the most paranoid and evil kings in history, known as the King of the Jews, to give birth to one who has been born King of the Jews. This is an artist's rendering of the Herodian you see off to the right in the distance. And then Bethlehem with a home and apparently sitting on rocks and apparently a cave underneath that would have served as the stable. And this is the way a lot of the stables were in the villages. And so this artist's conception of where Jesus might have been born in the shadow of Herod. But would they believe that they're really giving birth to the Savior who is Christ the Lord, the King of the Jews, especially in light of where they ended up? Perhaps arriving late in the day, there was no room for them in the inn. Now, that could have been an inn, a, a regular hotel of the day, which, if this was the case, uh, one, one Jewish commentator suggests that, that uh, there may have been an excuse by the innkeeper because inns were usually just one room where everyone slept together on mats and, and to, to think that there might possibly be a childbirth there would have made everybody impure, so he probably may have just turned them away for that reason. More likely, it was probably that she, they were going to the home of, of a relative, uh, some shirt-tail relation perhaps in Bethlehem, and their home was full. They had, they had their fill of all the people that were coming for the census. The only place they could send them was down below to the stable cave. And the stable cave would have looked something like this. This is one actually in a nearby town called Tekoa. So they ended up in the stable. And this is what a stable would have looked like. The floor was covered with manure cobwebs and a strong stench hung in the air. The manger itself was a stone hollowed out to, feed as, to serve as a feeding trough for the sheep. Mary likely delivered the baby herself, wrapped him in strips of cloth, which was a custom for the common folk, the peasants, and laid him in the cold, hard stone manger. Some shepherds, who else, showed up telling the story of even more angels announcing his birth. So even as Joseph and Mary wondered about this child, they also questioned how in the shadow of Herod's magnificent palace, God's son could be born in a stinking cave. You see, for Mary and Joseph, it was a long way to Bethlehem. And all along they had to be asking, how could this be? A virgin birth? God using us peasants? With Caesar as Lord and Herod, king of the Jews? 
Well, this Christmas, how far is it to Bethlehem for us? As you make your spiritual journey with the King of the Jews born in a stable cave, what are your obstacles? What are your questions? Perhaps your question might be, does God still work miracles like the virgin birth? Could God work miracles in my life or in the life of members of my family? Maybe our question is, can God still use me, sinful as I am, stubborn as I am? Can he use me like he used Mary and Joseph? Perhaps as we look around the world and we hear the news stories around the world, we might be asking the question, is God still in control? Is Christ still Lord in a Herod-like, Caesar-worshipping world? As we face a new year, we might ask the question, will I allow myself to be used of God in a world increasingly hostile to the one who wants to take not just Herod's throne, but wants to take the throne of everybody's life? Perhaps the question for us as we enter the new year is, will I give him the throne of my life? And let him be in control. As we ponder that, let's come together in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son, but also for the challenge that it gives us. And as we, this season, sit around the manger and ask the question, what child is this? We also ask these other questions about how you might want to use us, about how you are in control. And we pray that we might make that journey to Bethlehem and then from Bethlehem into the world in which you've placed us to be representatives of you, to be representatives of the Christ child, to herald his reign to our world to say that Jesus is king. May it be so for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's ponder a little bit with Mary and Joseph as we sing together, What Child Is This? comes from the Lift Up Your Hearts, number 95, and we will sing the three stanzas. Would you stand as we sing, What Child Is This?